Today, the House of Gucci movie debuts. It stars Lady Gaga, Adam Driver, Salma Hayek. Like, it's got an all-star cast, and Ridley Scott is directing it. And I am super hyped for this movie because I really enjoy the 80s motif going into the early 90s, but I also enjoy this story. And I read the House of Gucci book by Sarah Gay Forden, so you don't have to, and it is really exciting. And the subtitle is A Sensational Story of Murder, Madness, Glamour, and Greed. And this book, this family, this brand has it all. And I wanted to take some time to highlight things that I thought were really, well, the good parts of the story. Because this book reads a lot like a corporate biography, which makes a lot of sense because Sarah Forden is a corporate reporter. And she's very good at it, but that's how this reads. But then you have stuff like... Well, the Creole, which I hope has a starring role in this movie, and you're listening to this, or I'm recording this, before the movie comes out. So, there will be some things that we'll talk about, perhaps, after the fact. But I want to start with this boat, because this boat is a big part of the story, and a big part of Maurizio Gucci's undoing, Patrizia Gucci's undoing, you know, Patrizia murdered her husband, according to the courts, served a long time. Right, it's out here recently. Still maintains that she didn't do it, but you know she was convicted in Italian court of doing so. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But in honor of Allegra's birth, that is their child, right? They have two children, Allegra and Alessandro. Maurizio and Patrizia had those children, two girls. Maurizio made the most ambitious ambitious purchase of all: a 64 meter, 208 foot, three masted yacht called the Creole that had once been owned by Greek tycoon Stavros Nicharchos, uh, N-I-A-R-C-H-O-S. Sailors said it was the most beautiful ship in the world, although when Maurizio and Patrizia first saw the Creole, she was little more than a dilapidated rotting hull. Maurizio had bought the boat for what was considered a bargain price, less than a million dollars, from a Danish drug rehabilitation program that could no longer use it. He shipped the yacht from the Danish shipyard, where he had first seen it in Italy's Ligurian port, La Spezia, for initial repairs. He planned to restore the Creole to its original beauty. Commissioned by Alexander Cochran, a rich American carpet manufacturer from noted English shipbuilder Camper and Nicholson in 1925, the yacht was originally called the Vera and was one of the largest schooners built in its time. But the history of the schooner was also linked with tragedy. Cochran died prematurely of cancer and his heirs sold the ship shortly thereafter. It then changed ownership and name several times. After the war, when the vessel was decommissioned by the British Navy, it returned to the commercial yacht market. Stavros, whose last name I cannot pronounce, fell in love with it and bought it from a German businessman in 1953, rehabilitating it and renaming it the Creole. He replaced the small deck with a spacious cabin in teak and mahogany, large enough to contain a master bedroom and a studio. He was loathed to sleep below decks, terrified of drowning in his sleep. Whether or not one believes the sailor's adage that it's bad luck to change the name of a boat, and the Creole's name had been changed three times, 
tragedy came to Stavros. His first wife, Eugenia, took an overdose of pills and committed suicide on the Creole in 1970. A few years later, his second wife, Tina, who was Eugenia's younger sister, also killed herself on the yacht. In his grief, Nearchos, see I got it that time, came to hate the ship and never set foot on it again. He finally sold it to the Danish Navy, which turned it over to the, rug, the, the Drug Rehabilitation Institute. Maurizio bought the Creole in 1982. Though he thrilled at the prospects of idyllic cruises once the Creole had been restored, Patrizia worried that the tragic deaths of Naraccio's wives had cast a negative aura over the boat. An attentive client of astrologers and psychics, Patrizia convinced Maurizio to go aboard with Frida, a psychic, to exercise evil spirits. She was sure still haunted the sailing vessel. It had been taken out of the water for repairs and was propped up in a hangar in La Spezia's shipyard like an old beach whale. As they stepped aboard, Frida asked everyone, including two crew members, who were guiding their tour with flashlights to stand back. She went into a trance and started walking slowly along the deck into the central cabin and down one of the halls, mumbling incomprehensible words. Patrizia and Maurizio and the two crew members followed at a distance. The two workmen exchanged skeptical glances at each other. Open the door! Open the door! Frida cried out, suddenly as Maurizio and Patrizia looked at each other, puzzled. They were standing in the open corridor. There was no door, but the Sicilian crew member turned ashen. Before Reconstruction, there had been a door in that very spot, he said. The group continued to follow Frida, who walked in and out of the cabins, muttering. She stopped suddenly near the kitchen. Leave me alone, she shouted. The Sicilian crew member looked at her in horror and turned to Maurizio. That is where Eugenia's body was found, he whispered. Suddenly, a rush of cold air swept through the vessel, chilling the small group. What's going on here? cried out Maurizio, trying to figure out where the current of cold air had come from. The creole was enclosed in the construction hangar, and there were no open doors or windows that could have caused the sudden draft. At that moment, Frida snapped out of her trance. It's all over, she said. There are no more evil spirits on the Creole. Eugenia's ghost promised that from now on, she will protect the Creole and its crew. Yo! So, Maurizio Gucci uh, is the dude who was murdered in this story. But also, to catch y'all up just a little bit, because I know I came out the gates with psychics and ghosts and whatnot. Alright, so, Guccio Gucci starts this shop where he's making handbags and shoes and whatnot under his name. And he has these sons, Aldo and Rodolfo, to begin with, uh, who he comes to raise in the business. Okay, Aldo Gucci is the marketing genius and the businessman of the two, but Rodolfo has a large stake in the family business. Now, Rodolfo is also an actor and... He's smart enough to know that his brother is smarter than him unless his brother more or less run the company, but that doesn't last for very long because this family is full of infighting and people that are envious of each other. So Maurizio, who is born 
uh, to a Rodolfo and takes on the name Maurizio because that's the name that Rodolfo used when he was acting. Basically, it's drafted into the business after some time, but not before he fell in love with a woman named Patrizia Reggiani. And Patrizia was a firecracker, absolutely. And Maurizio's daddy, Rodolfo, ain't like her not one bit. And he told Maurizio that. And he told Maurizio, if you choose to marry this woman, I'm going to cut you out of the will. And Maurizio said, bet. So Maurizio shows up to his girlfriend's house saying, I don't have a job. My daddy kicked me out. And Patrizia's like, it's cool. My daddy likes you. And I like you. And we're like Romeo and Juliet. I think my daddy will help you. Her stepdaddy at the time uh, says, yeah, I'll help you. And put them to their paces and made sure they were in love. They get married. She feels like the backbone to him. She feels as if she gives that man some standing and had convinced him to be confident in himself and his abilities at a time when he was not confident in himself or his abilities. But that soon sours because Maurizio is the kind of dude that his wife later categorized as a cushion that everybody sits on. As they get up, he takes the shape of the last person that sat on him. I don't know that I would be able to do... uh, to keep talking with my wife if she had something to say like that about me, but I'm, I'm not built like Maurizio Gucci. Maurizio Gucci really didn't come into his own until he decided to fight his uncle for control of the company and did, and that took a whole lot out of him, but as he's fighting for control of this company, he's also really closing himself off from other people. Anybody that wants to tell him that he doesn't know what he's doing or that there's a better way to do things is someone he feels is his enemy because all he's been is crapped on for most of his life by his wife, by his daddy, by his uncle. So when he finally gets into a position to assert control, anybody that's not on his team is against him, and eventually everybody is against him. And as the company that he is fighting to take over and he wants to infuse his vision into is being bandied about, first by uh, an investment bank called InvestCorp, and then his daddy, and then his uncle. He's also losing his wife, but he's also losing touch with his wife because his wife is coming down harder on him almost than anybody else, right? And she doesn't enjoy that this man is seeking advice from people that aren't her. And she chooses to tell him about this. But he also says, you know what, I don't want to do this no more. And Maurizio is the worst kind of man because he hates confrontation. So that dude would quite literally ghost his wife, just just leave. And not tell nobody. And then tell other people to tell her that he ghosted her. Patrizia Rajani is not that kind of woman to take that sort of stuff. Like, she is absolutely on fire the whole time. And she remembers every single slight. And at one point in the course of this divorce that is happening, she is sending this man tapes to his office. Saying stuff like, I'm going to tell the world what you actually about. I'm going to tell the world just how awful a person you are. I'm going to tell the world that you have left your daughters for this tall blonde because you don't like their mama no more. I mean, she's absolutely going to go to work on him. But my favorite part of their breakup is also the part that I don't, I say favorite part, it's in air quotes. It's the part that signifies to me that this wasn't going to get any better, right? So I'm going to go ahead and read this excerpt. Uh, As Rodolfo predicted, Maurizio changed. He relied on DeSol, this is Domenico DeSol, who eventually would become CEO of Gucci, and another for advice, becoming increasingly annoyed by Patricia's efforts to guide him. As a younger man, Maurizio 
had looked to Patrizia to support him, giving him the strength to stand on his own against his father. As he gained power, she had somehow taken over his father's role, okay, telling him what to do, how and when to do it, and criticizing his decisions and advisors. Though he had finally won control of his family's company, he felt oppressed. Patrizia really beat him up, recalled the soul. She set him up against his uncle, his cousins, or anybody else she didn't feel was treating him properly. At Gucci events, she would say things like, I didn't get offered champagne first. That means they don't respect you. She became a real nuisance. She was an ambitious woman, and she wanted a role in the company. They told her no wives allowed, and she hated them for it. Meanwhile, Rodolfo's warning rang in Patrizia's head. She finally admitted that her father-in-law had been right about Maurizio. Her husband, obsessed with his dream for Gucci, excluded all else, including his own family. He rejected her opinions and advice, and the distance between them started to grow. He wanted Patrizia to tell him bravo all the time instead of reprimanded him. Instead, she reprimanded him constantly. She became unpleasant. De Sol replaced Patrizia as uh, her husband's trusted advisor, and she deeply resented that. Driven by her own ambition, she envisioned herself as the strong woman behind the weak man, but then suddenly found herself on the sidelines. Like, yo, dog. Okay. All right. In July, Maurizio called and arranged to see his children on weekends after he told his woman that he wasn't going to come back no more. But one time my man left home, Patricia turned to her companion, her friend, Pina Ariyama, who I think is going to be played by Selma Hayek in this movie. And she told Pina that, you know, she kind of want to have her husband knocked off. And she was like, for real? Yeah, I, I want to have him knocked off. And that was the first germ of this. She also said this stuff to her lawyer. And her lawyer was like, I can't represent you if you keep on saying stuff like that. And the way that this ended up working out, according to the courts in the book, was homegirl decided she was going to take money from her account that she had earmarked for a hitman, a hitman's driver, and her best friend to go kill her ex-husband. Shocker. She got found out. But the thing that I always thought was most interesting about that is Patrizia didn't seem at all to regret what she had done. As a matter of fact, they got her journals and used them in court. On the day that he died, she wrote the Italian word for paradise in her journal. Like, what? All right, so check it. Uh, the thing, <laughs> the thing I still can't get around is, you know, this old Stringer Bell line of, is you taking notes on a criminal conspiracy? Because that's what she was doing. She was taking notes on a criminal conspiracy, and she was having a damn good time uh, once he had died. Matter of fact, when his funeral came around, uh, Patricia had made all the funeral arrangements, I'm reading for the book again, um, 
That morning, Patricia played the perfect widow wearing black, a black veil over dark black sunglasses, a black suit, black leather gloves. She didn't hide her true feelings. She said, quote, on a human level, I'm sorry. On a personal level, I can't say the same thing. She told that to journal- journalist who asked her how she was feeling. Like, what, dog? Okay, check this out. She told her friend, he may have died, but I have just begun to live. At the beginning of 1996, she pinned a phrase on the inside cover of her leather-bound Cartier diary. Quote, few women can truly capture the heart of a man. Even fewer manage to own it. Like, the clips that I've seen so far, like the one that people are probably going to latch onto is Patrizia sitting next to the woman that would come to become his or her ex-wife's, or excuse me, her ex-husband's girlfriend. And she's basically warning her against stealing her mans. Well, again, that went about how you expected to go. I, Patricia, man, she's just such a piece of work in this, in this book. And none of this is ever going the way that I think it's going to go, mostly because this woman is not at all, at least in these pages of this book, anything like sorry for her husband being shot in the head outside of his office by people that say they were hired by her to whack her husband and people that say she was very excited to find out about said whacking of husband, even as she maintains her innocence today. I find that to be all just a little wild. Okay, so the other part about this is when they finally get to the place in Italy where they can arrest her, it's not just that they arrest her. It's, quite honestly, how they arrest her. Okay. So the cops show up, they tell her we got a warrant, they say we got to place you under arrest. And Patricia is like, cool, whatever, let me go get dressed. So this woman went to go get dressed. And she got dressed wearing Gucci. She got dressed wearing fur. She got dressed like she was a princess going to the ball. I don't think it was actually real to her that she was going to stay in that prison for any length of time. And by the way, when she did get convicted, she got convicted not just of, of attempt murder, but for 29 years. Like Italian law is wild, right? Because like they, they read you your name and your sentence before they say, you know, what you've been convicted of. So she got 29 years and she served a ton of it. Right? She only got released about four years ago. And there's a Discovery Plus documentary out there about her. And she got a pet parrot and all these other things. But it's also the way in which she lived. Like, at one point, she got transferred from one prison to another. And she uh, attempted suicide. And they later offered her in, like, 2014 the opportunity to go to an open prison, which would have been, like, a work release program. And she denied it. She didn't want it. And the reason she said she didn't want it was because I had never worked a day in my life why would I start working now? To get out of prison sooner, fool? Like, man, the audacity of, of this. I say that 
Patrizia, but it's really the Gucci's, right? Now, the one cool thing that I think happened in the Black Widow trial, you know, the murder of Maurizio Gucci it was called the Black Widow trial because they called her the Black Widow, and it was the it was Italy's O.J. Simpson trial, right? And it helped that it was only like three years after the O.J. Simpson trial, or uh, excuse me, three years after the O.J. Simpson trace, uh, tra- trace, uh, chase. So they're like simultaneous, uh, really, as they're going on. But the one thing that Gucci was able to give us in all of this, rather uh, alongside uh, you know the fashion and whatnot, is Tom Ford. Okay, Tom Ford occupies a large part of the pop culture of my life. I don't know if he is a a big deal to the generation behind me, but Jay Z made a song called Tom Ford, and all the jet setters and movie stars that I knew about wanted to rock with Tom Ford. It took me reading this book to find out that Tom Ford came up in Gucci and that had Maurizio not been a charismatic dude who was able to hire a woman named Don Mello away from Bergdorf Goodman to be his creative director, we would not know about Tom Ford because Don Mello was the person who gave Tom Ford a shot at the time. He is uh, partners with Richard Buckley and they had moved to Europe because they both trying to make it. Um, in the fashion industry, Buckley as a journalist who, I mean, he, he's made, but I think he wants to like edit a magazine and Ford wants to be a designer dude coming up from Austin, Texas ends up in Italy, not speaking a language, trying to be uh, a head designer, which, you know, I think is only the kind of thing a white dude would attempt to do and get away with and absolutely do because that's what Tom Ford was able to do. But there's like a good eight pages in this book about how this man came up. And he was apparently very generous with Sarah in telling the details of how he came up in the business. But I'm just going to give you a little bit of that. Tom Ford's going to be played by Reeves Carney or is played by Reeves Carney. Um, who, for those of y'all that like Penny Dreadful, I love Penny Dreadful. You know who exactly I'm talking about. That's Dorian Gray. But uh, let's, let's, let's give you this little bit of insight into my man's Tom Ford. As Mello and Lambertson built their team, a young, unknown New York designer named Tom Ford and his journalist boyfriend, Richard Buckley, were mulling over a move to Europe. Ford was a middle class, uh, was from a middle class family in Austin, Texas, where he grew up until his family moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, the home of his father's mother, Ruth, when he was a teenager. Both of his parents were real estate brokers. His mother was an attractive Tippy Hedron, uh, was attractive Tippy Hedron, uh, lookalike, who wore tailored clothes, simple heels, and her blonde hair in a shignon? Shignon? I don't know that word. His father was a supportive, liberal thinking man who, as Ford grew older, also became a true friend. Let me, let me look. What's a shignon, dog? Say, I don't know that word. I, I got a rule that if I don't know the word, Second time I read this word and I still don't know what it is. Oh, it's a bun. Oh, it's a bun. Okay. Let's see if they got a pronunciation on this mug right quick. Shignon? That's what it looked like. I know I'm not pronouncing this correctly. But, alright. So his mama was kind of cool. But that dude came up first, I think, wanting to be a model. And then figuring out that being a model was not at all as glamorous as being a fashion designer. And then, you know, became who he became, 
basically showing up to Gucci and staying on at Gucci. So as Maurizio Gucci is kind of losing his mind trying to get not just ownership of Gucci, but getting his cousins and his uncles kicked out of Gucci, ends up, you know, helping his brother, or excuse me, his cousin Paolo send his uncle Aldo to jail at a place that is nicknamed the Country Club Clink, um, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Like I was reading about this, man. I didn't know they got... Black folks don't seem to end up in these Country Club Clinks is what I'm saying, but... Still, succeeding to get his uh, his uncle in the pen on American tax evasion. And what I found to be interesting about that is Aldo Gucci was like, what you mean tax evasion? This is just, you know, it's just getting around the law. We do this in Italy all the time. Why is it such a big deal in the Americas? And it's like, hey, America, we have this voluntary tax system that you got to go along with. And we tend to take it kind of personally if you try to ditch the government on their taxes. And he's like, in Italy, they just kind of like, oh, you beat us, you know, keep moving. Uh, this ain't Italy, dog. And, and he learned that lesson. But Aldo eventually uh, had to bow out of the company completely. But Aldo was also a lecherous dude who would kiss fashion designers that he liked on the li- or editors that he liked on the lips, uh, would say these leading things to women in the workplace. Like, Aldo's also the dude that came up with the Gucci logo. You got the interlocking G's. He got that in the summer of 69, looking at 69. Gucci invented 69 is what I'm telling y'all. Gucci is a sex toy company. All that leather, 69. You know what I'm saying here? I'm being facetious, but um, I mean, I'm being facetious, but you get where I'm coming from. Like, like, Gucci is for sexy folks. Matter of fact, Tom Ford is the dude to put the Gucci label on the thongs and then had the models walking out there in the thongs. That's Tom Ford, right? That's Gucci. That's what they're about. Now you get into hip hop kind of getting to see it but Dapper Dan right Daniel Day in Harlem is the reason that hip-hop latched on to Gucci because Dapper Dan saw the Gucci stuff and then flipped it on his head using the logo to basically make up the clothes and Gucci ends up suing him because Gucci was suing everybody at that time for counterfeiting their stuff and try to put him out of business quite honestly and then later on Gucci tried to use his look that he invented to sell their clothes. And later, people was like, you better put Daniel Day on. You better put Dapper Dan on because y'all try to ruin that man. And Gucci ended up trying to do right by him and, you know, brought him in on some of their designing and whatnot, which is kind of cool. But black man, they was trying to put out a business in Harlem is what I'm trying to tell y'all while Tom Ford just got to come all the way up. All the way up. That man has directed two films. One of them is really good, like Nocturnal Animals. I really enjoy it. A single man, not so much. But he a fashion designer that got to make movies. He's a fashion designer with his own label that is international, right? Like his Instagram is ridiculous. I was on it just the other uh, other day, taking a look around here. We also getting back to this Creole, which is the thing that actually got Maurizio in trouble because Paolo, his cousin, was looking for dirt on all of his other cousins and his uncle because he felt like he was being sabotaged and kicked out of the business because he wanted to make affordable Gucci stuff for younger people to grow the line and whatnot. And his family was like, we don't make stuff for poor people. And he's like, it's not poor people. It's just young people. It's like, what we say? So Paolo takes it all personally and goes through everybody's finances and comes to find out that the Creole was bought 
using uh, money that was supposed to go to taxes and was put in these offshore banking accounts and whatnot. And ends up getting Mauricio in trouble in that way, getting everybody else in trouble that way. And he eventually uh, dies as he's trying to fight for his place in this company and his family. Like this family is all about its infighting, just all about its infighting. Aldo Gucci ended up dying. Rodolfo died of cancer. Like, it's, it's a whole sort of thing. Maurizio was shot in the head. Patrizia goes to prison. Like, this whole family is, is buck wild. But, I say all that to say, like, the character that Lady Gaga is playing and Patrizia Reggiani, who, by the way, didn't want to drop her name of Gucci until they, like, made her drop her name of Gucci. She was, she was saying, nah, I'm Gucci forever. That's why that spectacles, or spectacles, uh, uh, the father, the son, or whatever, and, and House of Gucci, like, she believed that stuff, like, homegirl really wanted to be married into the money, and only into the money, but as we continue to talk about, like, what Gucci was, and what it became, it, it's, it's the story of how a family built a company that outgrew their means, like, I'm kind of dealing with this one myself. Like, the, the stuff that gets you to where you're going isn't the stuff that keeps you there. Certainly not the stuff that continues to help you grow. So you have to either find ways to reinvent yourself, which is ridiculously hard. Or you have to trust other people to pick it up and run with it from that point. And you see that in the fashion industry, particularly in the 90s and the early 2000s, rather frequently. You know, like Louis Vuitton is basically bought up or the people that own Louis Vuitton was basically bought up. Uh, Yves Saint Laurent was bought up by Gucci. Um, you know, keep going down the line there. Fendi. They all at one point or another basically taken over by bigger, stronger companies who know how to make those smaller companies into larger ones that can do more. And that was kind of the hang up with Gucci is all the stuff that Maurizio wanted to do acted as if Money wasn't a big deal, as if money would just kind of fall out the sky. But this is also a dude who managed to go $40 million in debt at a time when he sold his company or his half of the company for $120 million in like 1992. I did the inflation math on that using a calculator on the internet, and it's $230 million. So that man spent $230 million and went $40 million in the hole. I'm sorry, what? Like, that's... That's so much money. So much money. But that's how the Gucci's were living. But this is also a dude that was paying his ex-wife like $100,000 a month. And she thought that was cheap. Like, she went on a Italian TV show that ran from like 1987-2001 that I kid you not is called Harem. And equated her divorce settlement to a plate of lentils. I... When they say House of Gucci, I don't think that people get that the Gucci's believed they were royalty. And royalty like 19th century monarchs, like the Romanovs, that's what they believed. Because they could make some shoes and they could make some handbags with some bamboo handles. I don't know that I could ever get there, but I'm sure everybody can get there because everybody's a human being and most human beings are self-centered. But I didn't think it would go so far as having a good life and then still needing to see your husband or your ex-husband dead. Because that's where Patrizia 
ends up going. She ends up going to this place where she cannot be happy if that man is still living, which again is buck wild. She's living in a chateau. She's going where she wants to go. Her kids don't want for anything. And yet she chose to make that the move. Wouldn't have been the move for me. I don't even think it would have been the move for you. But certainly was the move for her. At a time when Gucci is printing money. And she's getting a little bit of what her husband got. And her husband is also deathly afraid of getting married again. As his girlfriend at times like, yeah, we're going to have a Christmas wedding. It's going to be a white wedding. He's like, I ain't say all that because... My last marriage soured me on marriage forever, and I'm dealing with the repercussions of that myself. Uh, but man, I, can re- I highly recommend, if you like the movie, and I'm sure that you will, that you go and read this book. Uh, it's it's a bit of a slog in some cases because of the corporate nature of it. Like, what do you care about stocks? What do you care about valuations? What do you care about uh, corporate hostile takeovers? But it's all in here. The good parts, Tom Ford... Patrizia and Mauricio going from a storybook marriage into one where I got to see him murdered. It's all in the book, right? I mean, it's it's really fascinating if you are into the history and you one of these uh, murdery mystery types. I'm really not one of these murdery mystery types. I just thought that the House of Gucci story was one I needed to read about before I go see this movie that's two hours and 37 minutes on a Wednesday before Thanksgiving because I'm that type. I also think that this movie ain't going to do very well because it ain't built for the millennials. It ain't built for the Gen Zers. It's built for the Xers. It's built for the greatest generationers. And I don't know how you know much they want to go out and see movies in a pandemic, especially a pandemic that is targeting them. But, you know, whatever. We'll see how it goes. I would also add in here, like, the trial is also buckwild in that it was a bunch of finger-pointing. And it was a bunch of Patricia saying, I didn't do it. And a bunch of other people saying, yeah, you did. You absolutely did. My goodness, dog. All of it's in here. But I'm glad I got to the food who stuff because the Creole, like, where are these? Like, I love this movie called Tenet. And I was thinking, as I'm looking at these $830 Gucci shoes, how rich do I have to be to just shop at Gucci? And I have decided I have to be able to afford Andre Sater's yacht. Okay? If I can't afford Andre Sater's yacht, I probably shouldn't be shopping at Gucci. Because they got they got loafers that I seen at Ross that cost $830. I can't be buying no $2,000 handbag. I can't be buying no $600 belt. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. But they apparently are from Florence, from Milan, from northern Italy, where this is just how they get down. And apparently, you and I, we are living the wrong life because not only are people buying these clothes, buying these accessories, but Gucci is still making a killing. Goodness me.